Heavenly Father, as we open your word, we pray that you would speak to us by your spirit, that our hearts and minds would be focused upon you and would be open to those things you would want us to know, the ways that you might want to challenge us, convict us, encourage us, Lord, that we might be equipped and encouraged in all areas of life to live kingdom first every day of every week of every year to your honor and glory in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to please be seated. At 19 years old, he was a failed stripper who was homeless, living in his van, where he smoked weed and earned just enough money to live. Now, at least he was in Hawaii, so he had beautiful scenery while he was living this way. And then... One day, after getting a job as a server at the Bubba Gump Shrimp Company, a director came to eat there, and during that meal, she offered him a job. And now, 20 years later, he has a net worth of over $40 million. He's the star of Guardians of the Galaxy and the Jurassic Park reboot, Not to mention at this point a household name, Chris Pratt. When I read this story, I was intrigued by it. It's all over the place. Um, He's told the story numerous times. But there's one element about the story that fascinates me and nauseates me. The reason he got his break into show business has nothing to do with hard work. It has nothing to do with training. He'd had one semester of acting at a community college before this point. He got his break because as the lady who hired him said, when she saw him, she thought to herself, he is so hot. And her first words to him were, You're cute, do you act? And from that, he got his first gig that eventually led to what you see today. Purely by his physical looks. Here's what's interesting. Um, 2010 Newsweek concluded, based on a widespread survey of hiring managers, the following statistics. 57% of hiring managers believe an unattractive but qualified job candidate will have a harder time getting hired. 68% of hiring managers believe that once hired, looks will affect the way that managers rate an employee's job performance. That's sickening. I don't care how good you are or how bad you are. I care about what you look like, and that will go as part of how I evaluate job performance. All right, now, here are at least three categories of people that, according to these managers, were all affected by this. 
61% of hiring managers said that women would benefit from wearing clothes that show off their figure. 70, although 75% of Americans are considered overweight, about 60, 66% of managers said they thought that managers would hesitate before hiring somebody who is overweight. Old people, 84% of managers said their bosses would hesitate before hiring a qualified candidate who looked much older than everybody else on the staff. This is our culture. And you know what? This morning, I'm really not here to say much about our culture. I'm not here to talk about what's out there because as nauseating as all of this is, James wants to address this issue within the church. Is the church showing this kind of favoritism? Is the church treating people based upon their looks or their money or their power or the success? Does the church look any different than the culture does? That's what James addresses this morning. If you would, open up your Bible to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, we're beginning in verse 1. And James has been talking, he's talked about trials and about wisdom and about wealth. And then last week, he kind of hit us with genuine faith has to hear and do. If you're not hearing and doing the word of God, James would question whether your faith is genuine. But from that hearing and that doing, he now moves into this a very particular area of faith where right at the beginning he says this in verse one of chapter two. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. It is a command. My brothers, as you think about your genuine faith, hold no favoritism. Show no partiality as you live out the faith in Jesus. Now that word partiality, what does that word mean? It is used a number of times throughout scripture. I'm gonna give you just one example. This is out of Colossians chapter three, where Paul writes this. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality with God. Whatever you do, God's gonna see it that way. You're to work heartily. The person who does wrong, they will be paid for what they've done. There's no partiality, and here's what doesn't matter to God. It doesn't matter how good-looking you are or how good-looking the bad person is. It doesn't matter how much money you have or how little you have. None of those things are going to bother God. It's work heartily, and the person who does wrong will be paid for what they've done. 
There's no partiality. And you see this multiple times throughout the scriptures. At one point in Ephesians 6, when he's talking to both masters and slaves, part of the reason that Paul says they should respect one another in the Lord is because there's no partiality with God. God doesn't care if you're the master or the slave. Either way, he's not showing you partiality. He's going to treat you as you are. So that's the concept behind this word. And James is saying we as believers, we cannot have that attitude as we hold the faith. Um, I gotta go back for a moment. Um, I, I didn't know if I was gonna do this or not, but I'm gonna go ahead and do it. Because I want you to see um, how nauseating it can be in the church. And, and this, is a, this is an example that many of you aren't gonna be able to relate to at a personal level, like you haven't necessarily done this, but you're gonna feel how nauseating it is. One of the things I had to learn at the very beginning of this church plant five years ago is that whether I like it or not, we need money to make the church go. We have to pay people. We have to lease this facility. We have to pay for our internet space. We pay constant contact a certain amount of money every month so we can send that email that everybody's now going to read every single week because we showed it to you. But it costs money. I mean, all that stuff costs money. And I've never been in a position before redemption where that all was coming to me. Because every other church I've worked at, I was beneath somebody else. They were the ones responsible for the money. Do you know what it does to you when you start recognizing you have to have these funds or you can't pay your employees, you can't get this building, you can't do all of these things? All of a sudden, there rises a tendency in you to go, well, that person's giving a lot of money. I need to take care of them. Because if I don't, they could leave. But this person over here, they don't give much. So if they leave, it won't impact the church as much. So I gotta spend more time with these people than I do with these people. You know how ugly and disgusting that makes you feel when you recognize that that can be in you? When you can see yourself, even in little ways, making those decisions? That's what I had to wrestle with. And in churches, everybody wrestles with it. Every person who leads a church wrestles with it. And you find your ways of doing it. You do things like, all right, I'm gonna stop paying attention to everything, you know, I don't want to know how much each person is giving anymore because I don't trust myself to know how much each person is giving. You find your ways of dealing with it, but you have to deal with it because that just showing favoritism in our lives, I mean, think about your job. Who is it that you need to treat in the right way so that you can get the promotion? Who is it that you need to associate with in a particular group so that you can be thought of in a particular way? But if you associate with these people over here, you may not be thought of as highly. What are the ways within your life where favoritism is there? 
And James says, do not show partiality. Do not show favoritism as you hold the faith in Jesus Christ. So, what does that mean to hold the faith? The idea is as you are living out your profession of faith, as you're living out that um, I have said that I am a believer in Jesus Christ, now here's how it reflects in my life. As I go about my life as a believer, he says, as you go about your life, as you are behaving, as you are making decisions, as you are doing certain things, he says, do not show favoritism. Do not show partiality as you are living that out. And he ties on this one little phrase, the Lord of glory. That title is used of Christ only twice in the New Testament. Typically, glory is related to God the Father. You see it throughout the Old Testament. You see it a number of times in the New Testament. But two times in the New Testament, Christ is called the Lord of glory. Usually, glory, it speaks to the reputation, the character of God. That's his glory. It's his fame. It's his honor. That's God's glory. And so when you call Christ, and again, you can see it in this particular translation, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, comma, the Lord of glory. They throw out there this title that is so rarely used. Why? Because Jesus Christ fully and perfectly represents the glory of God the Father. He represents the character and nature of who God the Father is. Right, so let's put it together. If you and I are professing faith in the one who perfectly represents the Father, we need to be like the Father because he is. And so we cannot show partiality because he does not. Our reading this morning out of 2 Chronicles, that reading talks about God the Father not showing partiality. And you could see that a number of times throughout the Old Testament. That God the Father, just like we read in the New, does not treat people with partiality based on external appearance. Based on what our culture might think is most important. Maybe one of the most obvious examples of this, David. Remember when Samuel comes to anoint the next king and all the brothers are brought before him and you've got all these big muscular men, they look like rulers, they look like warriors. And then at the end it's like, do you have any more? And almost as an afterthought, well, yeah, but like we got one out there with the sheep. But he can't be the one. Why? Because he's the youngest, because he's a runt, because our society would not think of him as a leader. I mean, all of these things. And even when he comes in, God has to say to Samuel, I look at the heart. It's not about how tall you are, which is unfortunate for the lippers. They would be happy about that. It's not about how tall you are. It's not about how good-looking you are. Again, unfortunate for the lippers. (laughs) 
Those things, those external things, they are not the way God judges. They are also not the way that we should be judging. I need to be pastoring people no matter what they look like, no matter how much money they have. None of those things should matter because what God is looking at is the person. God looks at you and loves you because you're made in his image. Loves you because you're his creation. No matter the rest. And so James starts this whole thing off and he says, do not show partiality as you are living out your faith in Jesus. As you are wearing your jersey that says, I belong to Christ. Don't be treating people based on externals. Don't be treating people based on what you think you can get from them. Treat them as made in the image of God and do it because you serve the Lord of glory. Right? And this is really important right here. I, wanna, I ran across this little story I want to read to you. Um, Joel Engel is a writer in Los Angeles, and he writes frequently for the New York Times. And, and he wrote this about an experience he had getting onto a bus in Los Angeles. And this is what he wrote. Considering the large crowd inside the bus, the lack of voices startled me. Only a rustle of newspapers and the groaning of diesel engine broke the silence. Several well-dressed men stood in the aisle, so I assumed all the seats were taken. But as I moved toward the rear, I spotted an empty aisle seat on a double bench. Right, so double bench, somebody's here, but nobody's right here on the aisle. Um, and I said to myself, I wonder why this is not occupied. The young man next to the window, sitting in this seat, was breathing heavily. His face was covered with what appeared to be fibroid tumors. His long, filthy, matted hair and tattered clothing made him unappealing. He was obviously homeless, and it was easy to guess why. He sat with shoulders hunched and eyes fixed through the window. Nearly paralyzed by pity, I gave silent thanks that my young daughter wasn't with me, asking her inevitable questions about him in a none-too-discreet voice. But it was because of her that I finally sat down. The kind of man I wanted my daughter's father to be sits in a bus next to someone whose only crime is extreme ugliness. I can't pretend I was relaxed. My left shoulder and arm scrunched involuntarily, he continued to stare out the window without acknowledging my presence. The bus made one more stop before entering the freeway. Several people boarded. An elderly woman walked toward the rear. I waited for everyone else to offer her a seat. None did. So I stood and I motioned to her my seat. Suddenly I heard, no, I don't want to sit there next to him. Here's the thing I want to point out in this account, and this is the thing that I want us to hear. We are called to represent the Lord of glory. One of the ways we do that is by not showing favoritism, not showing, not judging people by externals. However, the reason we do it is because of him, not because of the people around us. In his story, 
I want you to think about why he did what he did. It wasn't to be a good example for the people around him. And by the way, if that was the reason, he failed. Because nobody changes a thing about how they act on that bus because of what he did. And by the way, if you act in the right way, if you represent Jesus well, I still guarantee you plenty of people are not gonna give a flip. But he wasn't doing it for the people there. He was doing it for his daughter. He wanted to be the type of man that his daughter would be proud of. And that's what he thinks about his heart. Brothers and sisters, we need to be thinking about Christ. We do what we do for him, not for the people around us. And if you try to act right, just so you can be an example for the people around you, what do you think's gonna happen when over and over they don't care? It's not about them. It's about him. The primary reason we don't show partiality, because you know what? You may actually treat somebody well, like this young man. He was treated well in the sense that this guy came over and at least sat by him. This young man doesn't even acknowledge his presence. You may treat somebody well that everybody else is rejecting, and that person may still reject you. That person may ignore you. That person may not care. You're not primarily doing it for the people. You're doing it for him. And that's why we keep doing it. Because we represent him for his sake. Now, secondarily, yes, we can be a light to others. And it doesn't really matter how people take that light, as long as you're doing it well and you're honoring Christ by doing it. But if that's your primary motivation, you're missing the key foundation, Christ. That's why we do what we do. So James jumps out there and he says, do not show partiality as you are living out your faith in Christ. That does not represent Christ well, and Christ cares about that. And then he does this. Here are two kind of examples, two further things that he wants to say. And as we dive into this, Here's the reality check that I want you to think about for this particular week. Every week in James, we're doing a reality check on our faith. Here is the reality check. Are you making unjust evaluations of people based upon how good-looking they are or not good-looking they are? Based upon what kind of money they have or don't have? Based upon, and I think for some of us, this may actually be more in line with some of the kinds of favoritism we might show, how weird they are or how normal they are. Do you ever find yourself going, that guy's a little odd. I think I'm gonna move towards these people over here. Where is it that you may be making unjust evaluations of people based on externals, or on the ways that they may benefit you. Which, by the way, that's part of what I had to struggle with when we started the church. It wasn't just that somebody had more money than somebody else. It was the benefit I would derive from them. Where are you making those in your life? James 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 2. Here's our first little example 
For a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in. All right, so his description is this. A, a man where he doesn't have to even necessarily call him rich because he's wearing a gold ring, and he's wearing, literally in Greek, shiny clothing. Now, you know he's wealthy. Whereas the next guy that comes in, he is wearing shabby clothing, which is a euphemistic translation. Um, this word means filthy, soiled. Um, this guy smells like urine. It's obvious that he comes off the streets. And by the way, urine, especially if it's from a cat, smells really bad. If spoiled mayonnaise and dead fish could make a baby, it would be cat pee. I know, because he has ruined over the last couple of weeks, I don't know how many blankets, a couch, and even this morning, he peed on something, which is why Dave Sinclair and I are having a talk after the service, because <laughs> my family wants to keep the cat, and that's not going to happen if he keeps doing this. This guy stinks, right? So imagine your congregation, a man walks in, and by the way, as a church plant, we have yet to get the ultra-wealthy person to walk in the door who's just going to buy our church. So just imagine for a moment that somebody walks in, and they've got like gold rings on all fingers, and you know, they're wearing some really fancy kind of thing, and you're going, oh my goodness, and they drove up in a Ferrari, okay? And then right behind him walks in a guy that you can smell from the front row when they're in the back. And what happens? And you pay attention to the one who, fine, who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. Come on up here to the front. Sit next to Terry. Right? That's a good spot there. Or the lippers. Now sit back there. I've been picking on them all morning, so I'll just keep going. And then you say to the poor man, you stand over there. Because you stink. Just get away from everybody. Go to the back. Or you say, you sit down at my feet where you belong because you're the poor in society. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James does not mess around. He says, when you do that kind of thing, you are becoming a judge with evil thoughts. And that term evil, when it is applied to judges, in scripture, it means bribing. You are a judge who receives bribes in order to get what you want. You don't care about justice, you don't care about what's right, you care about you. And ultimately, isn't that what favoritism is? To a degree, we're making the decision because somehow we think we're gonna benefit from it. I read this story this week about Judge Mark Chavella, and you may know the story from 2009, Kids for Cash. Um, it was pretty dang awful. They ended up making a documentary film based on it. But here's what was happening. This judge was having kids who would come before him, and I mean, they mentioned some of these kids. There was one 14-year-old girl named Hillary. She made a fake MySpace page about her school's vice principal. That was her crime. There was a kid who cursed at another student's mom. That was his crime. They were brought before this judge. He sentenced them, took them away in shackles, 
And he did this to almost 3,000 kids. And here's why he was doing it. He had run originally on a platform of being tough on teenagers. But he got to a point where he was sending kids to a detention facility that was pretty run down. So he made a deal to have a new detention center built. And he would get a 10% finder's fee on the construction. He made $2.2 million by sending almost 3,000 kids who didn't deserve it to jail. Many of them losing their high school careers. I mean, it was nasty. I don't want to be anything like that. And yet that's exactly what James says. When you are showing favoritism, that's what you are. You're a corrupt judge. You're accepting somebody's good looks to treat them better and treat somebody else poorly. You're accepting somebody's money so that you can get a benefit and treat other people poorly. You're accepting a bribe is what you're doing. I don't wanna be that. James goes on, listen my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? but you have dishonored the poor man. Um, we need to change our view on how we see um, helping the poor, right? Because it sits at the heart of something that James works through in this whole epistle. Um, did you know that as a little church, we do a bunch of stuff for the poor? Um, we have paid rent, we've paid other bills, we have put people up in shelters, in hotels, um, we have given a lot of money as, as a little church. And when I say that, and we celebrated this, there's a certain amount of like, that's awesome, we're pride, that's wonderful, look, we're doing the right thing. And um, I wanna tell you that if you are helping the poor, you are doing nothing more than what you are called to do as a believer in Jesus Christ. There's nothing to celebrate in the sense of, wow, I've gone, I've gone above and beyond. It's actually just what? we're supposed to do. To praise somebody for helping the poor would be similar to this. Imagine for a moment, since we are you know, getting ready to, well at least some of us are, getting ready to watch the Cowboys today. Imagine heaping praise on Dak Prescott because he wore his jersey to the game. Dude, that's so awesome you wore that jersey. You're amazing, thank you Dak, that's wonderful. Zeke, I can't believe you wore pads. That's so amazing you wore your pads to do this. Jason Garrett, you're standing on the sideline like you always do. That's awesome. That's so amazing. You're gonna make all these decisions like you always do and we're gonna remain an eight and eight team for the rest of your tenure. It's awesome, Jason, keep doing it. You do not praise people for those things that they're just called to do. We are called to care for the poor as part of what it means to follow Christ. Could you imagine what that means when somebody likes me, somebody like me, treats somebody who is poor worse than somebody who is rich? I'm going directly against, I mean, just my calling. It's not even like an extra thing. It's what I'm supposed to be. And James says, when you're doing this, you are dishonoring the poor man. And you are dishonoring God. And 
Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Now, that's a generic statement. There's a lot of wealthy people in this room right now. Um, and there are a lot of great followers of Jesus Christ who have money. But his point is this. How many times have we sucked up to somebody who doesn't care about God, who doesn't care about us? How many times are we giving ourselves in order to get something, but the person we're doing it with, they could care less about God and probably about you? What are we doing? Well, we just think we can get something. James says, don't live like that as believers. It doesn't honor Christ. It doesn't honor the Father. That's not what we are called to be. Do not show partiality as you live out your faith in Christ. Treat people as the image of God. Treat them as one who is a follower of the Lord of glory who represents the Father. Do it because of him. Not even because of the people around you. Not even because of the people you might treat well. But first and foremost because of him. Because that's our calling. And here's what I think we'll find out. Actually, I know we will find this out. I don't think it. I know it. Um, so recently, Chris Pratt has done a commercial that I think is awesome. Have you seen the Michelob Ultra commercial? It's a great commercial. You know, right at the beginning, he gets the phone call, and he's like, yeah, you know, it's, and, and you know he's gotten the role for something. And, and, and as he goes through the commercial, it's he's going to become the spokesman for Michelob Ultra. And so the whole thing is like he's practicing everything he's doing. He's running, and he's like, Michelob Ultra. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, and he's like working out his arm to lift the beer. And then later on, he's got the little tiny weight, and he's doing this for the drinking part of it. And I mean, just everything is about his role in Michelob Ultra. And then he shows up, and like he's driven in. You know, he's got a driver, and he gets there, and he gets out of the car, and the guy's got the clipboard, and he's the one who's, like, signing people in, and he looks at him, name, please, and Chris Pratt's like, Chris Pratt. Okay, yeah, right over there. Then the camera pans, and you see all the extras, <laughs> and there's a sign, extra. That's where he goes. God does not care about your name. Not in that sense. God doesn't care how much you've accomplished. He doesn't care how much money you have. Those things are not how you're being evaluated. Your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ is all that matters. The way you serve him and love him, that's what matters. And you can have the most famous name in the world, but if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, it's gonna be, who are you? Um, I love that commercial because it's funny, and it makes the point. It doesn't matter how far Chris Pratt has come. And on the other hand, this is what's interesting. You've probably read this or seen it. Chris Pratt confesses Christ as his Lord. He calls himself a believer. He talks about God quite a bit. In fact, there are instances in award assemblies and other things where he is talking about praying, he's talking about grace, he's talking about the blood. I mean, just all this stuff. He's talking about Christ. Here's what's fascinating. That right there, 
matters so much more than everything else about Chris Pratt. And yet that doesn't matter anything to the people around him. The thing that's most important, they miss. And in fact, here's how Chris Pratt said it. Hollywood's fine with him being a Christian. He doesn't get issues. He's like, nobody gets on to me for this. But he, may, he said it in this way. All they care about is that you're genuine. As long as you're genuine, they don't care what you are. You could be anything. I'm a genuine this, a genuine that, a genuine this. Well, I can tell you, you can be genuinely wrong. And Hollywood is genuinely wrong. Because Chris Pratt, who's this guy that is trying, at least to some degree, and I don't know him, I mean personally, I don't know what it, but at least from the outside, there's some attempt to be living for Christ, what really matters. And yet, everybody around him is missing what actually matters. They see his looks, they see his funniness, they see his reputation, and missing the most important thing. But brothers and sisters, when we stand before Christ, it's the only thing that's gonna matter. The most important thing. How are you serving the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for his commitment to us, for the way that he lived, for the way that he served, for the sacrifice that he made, and that he did it for all people, that there was never favoritism in our Lord Jesus Christ. He looked out for those who were rich and poor, male and female, Gentile, Jew, it didn't matter. As we look through his ministry, he was constantly open to loving, reaching out to everyone despite whatever their externals were. Let us be people who would be like our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, not showing partiality, but loving everyone in his name and treating everybody like they are made in the image of our great God. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.